Okay. So as I was, as, as I thought I was saying, um, let's just use this as a format or a platform to explore uh, some of these navigational questions, right? Um, in terms of the the meta crisis, I have a an essay coming up uh, through the side view where I'm talking a little bit about metamodernism, the meta crisis, uh, how integral philosophy and John Gebser's work uh, can interface with some of these questions and concepts. Um, so first of all, if anybody has any questions just in terms of integral theory or, or integral philosophy and Gebser and the present, this would be a good space to ask away. Um, happy to answer any questions about my book or my writing. Uh, otherwise, I think, I think it would be good to highlight a few interesting things that I've come across this week in terms of understanding um, the, the process of what, what is going on right now in terms of a systems breakdown, um, but also a system breakthrough in that sense of mutual aid that Kropotkin talks about. Um, there was an interesting article that uh, Michael Bowens uh, that I have published on Liminal, which is an upcoming media platform. Uh, we're going to be officially launching it this week, but I've been sharing the link anyway. Um, Michael Bowens talked about, uh, from a kind of Gibsarian uh, perspective, he brings in a couple of different thinkers, the, the, the number of issues that are going on right now, right? And there's this crisis and breakdown of um, internationalism in, in the face of more, more of the corporate sector in terms of the production of needed items and face masks and ventilators, et cetera. We're having a kind of a production crisis and we're also having an economic crisis on top of the ecological one or environmental one with this, with this, um, with this virus. So in many ways, this is kind of a tremor or a quake that anticipates the kind of, um, full stop disruptions we will probably be experiencing at a much more intense level as the century uh, crawls on. It's very much what William Gibson called in his novel, The Jackpot. Um, and I don't recommend reading the peripheral um, as, as, a, as, a, as a mode of uh, inspiring yourself during these times, but it certainly reflects a little bit of what we're going through in terms of um, echoing reality, right? Art echoing reality. So, yeah, where am I going with this? I think, I think the way in which we have to understand this crisis is that it is something like a hyper object that is distributed over space and time. There's multiple dimensions to it. And there's multiple expressions of modernization and modernity and the arc of modernity that are kind of coming to, coming to an end. And I don't say that as a hyperbole. I think, you know, descriptively what we're seeing are, um, forms of centralized economics and production that are falling by the wayside in, in, in the wake of this, relatively speaking, small tremor in terms of the kind of disruptions we'll probably see in the next few decades with uh, you know larger climate crisis, food disruption, et cetera. So we're really kind of getting a sense of uh, new modes of thinking, new modes of organizing society. And then also uh, just in terms of the, the, the sort of economic policies, um, the way in which we've been running our society ideologically, their economic systems are absolutely going through a shift. And the kind of things that we're seeing both on the left and the right are a kind of a post, I don't know how to, how to exactly say this because we don't have it yet as a form of economics, but it, it's beyond the left and the right in that sense of 
Um, we're, we're thinking about things like universal basic income. We're considering these policies in a way and in a kind of a direness that we've never had before. They've been abstract or they've been kind of polarized, but now we're faced with certain um, gravities and situations that sort of necessitate things that might otherwise be seen as impossible or never having been considered before. Um, but the idea in to kind of circle back to Bowen's essay, and I'm going to share it in the chat as well, a link to it, um, is this idea that we have to kind of take this moment to seize the possibility here of moving to a more distributed economic system, a more, as Gepster would say, you know, an aperspectival expression of economics, um, a more integral kind of society. The question is, what does that really look like and how do we navigate towards that? Um, I'm going to share this in the chat. Here we go. Yeah. So I like that essay because it's very, as he says towards the end, and I'll just read it to you guys because I think it's um, very well stated, uh, the last paragraph. He says, um, Corona is a serious crisis, but the climate is a much more serious one. In a paradoxical way, the global mobilization against Corona, despite the weakness and mistakes, has shown what can be done and how fast institutions can adapt and change their choices once our life and thus their legitimacy is at stake. This bodes well for climate change adaption and ecological transformation, but make no mistake, this is just one of the crises we will need. The deep transformation that we need for this bifurcation requires, and here's the Gibsarian flavor here, a mutation, mutation of consciousness on par with the ones that we had in the 11th and 16th century in Europe. Though this time it will, be, it will need to be global and fairly simultaneous, we are not there yet, but we're definitely seeing strong premises for it and for which this crisis acted as a revealer. This is just the first, and this is a very interesting concept that he brings up, and I like to think of COVID-19 as, as, as uh, along these lines. He calls it uh, the first of a pedagogical first of the pedagogical catastrophes that will force the necessary transformation to a new stable system that lives within the confines of nature and realizes its interdependence with all other life forms. Just that one sentence alone is very interesting, but the, the, the description of a pedagogical catastrophe I find to be very helpful. It's, it's sort of self-defining uh, self in that sense. It's, it's how can a crisis teach us something not only about the systems that we're employing, but the modes of sense-making that we uh, are, are using to navigate and build civilization with, right? The worlding that we have that is underlying many of these economic ideological policies, our politics, our relationship to one another. There's a lot of potential for this to be a teaching moment, especially as so many of us on the one hand are, are, are forced to work from home and to pause and to have a lot more, some of us at least have a lot more spaciousness to, to kind of think about the way in we are run, the way in which we are running things and the way in which our institutions are handling the crisis, like printing money, et cetera. Um, there's a certain pliability that's now kind of opened up. There's a certain gap in, well, the impossible is now just a reality. So is the way in which we have been running things really the way we need to continue or to go back to? So there's a sort of opening here to be a pedagogical catastrophe, to be something that we can learn from. And on the other hand, for many of the folks who are forced to work right now and who are being pushed to work in terms of Amazon you know, delivery folks and um, 
everyone who is not receiving the kind of uh, basic care in the crisis, just in terms of uh, rent suspension, et cetera, we're, we're seeing a kind of a collapse of a certain mentality that is no longer viable, right? Um, we are not taking care of our workers. Uh, labor has been eroding for the past 30 or 40 years. So some of these sort of baseline um, caretaking that society should have had in place, at least in America, is being questioned, right? Why don't we have these things? Why don't we have basic health care on top of the crisis, right? Um, why are we going to go in debt for it? So, and, and that's just a sort of a, um, like a local policy thing. But underneath that, right, are these certain again, economic and ideological crises that are happening simultaneously. So this is a teaching moment. And I think we can really see it that way. And we can kind of seize it that way in this sense of going forward and trying to propose new policies. And in a sense, um, for us in the consciousness culture, um, who have some kind of platform for teaching and publishing and writing to promote counter ideas, to pr promote ideas that are uh, that may be adaptable for the benefit of all. Um, now, uh, Bowens talks a little bit about that too, is a sort of, well, this is, this is our moment to kind of shine and try to take these ideas and propose them and try to enact them where necessary. Um, because the necessity of these ideas are going to become, well, they're obviously very, very needed, but now on top of it being a pedagogical catastrophe, there's a clearing, right? There's there's an opportunity to actually implement some of them on more local levels in our networks, et cetera. So we should be doing everything we can to try to articulate a better system that works better in terms of this planetary context that Bowens is talking about. Um, when, what he says, and again, in that essay, that we recognize, you know, we need to transform to a stable system that lives within the confines of nature and realizes in its interdependence with all other life forms. An economic system based on infinite growth is not that. And we can, we can say that as sort of a two-dimensional or reductive uh, understanding of economics. And I certainly need to study it more, but I know enough to know that, you know, infinite growth is just simply a non-viable thing, you know, and we need to transition um, our civilization to a much more, to a civilization that reflects nature. Um, but anyway, uh, the end of the last sentence he has here, which I'm going to cover before I move on and check our questions is, he says, instead, we will need to move to a steady state economic and social re regime that can last many centuries and millennia. And that's how he closes it. And I found that to be a very interesting statement, a steady state economic and social regime. Uh, Latour talks about this uh, as, as a, so uh, Bruno Latour, and I don't know if I have the book here with me that I can show you, but um, it's one of my favorite books right now. And I've been connecting it with a lot of what Gebser is talking about. It's a small little um, text, it's really an essay length where he's talking about the new attractor, right? Uh, and he's been talking about this beyond this book. He's been writing quite a bit about Gaia and the Gaia hypothesis and what he calls um, uh, the, the new politics of Gaia. And he calls it the climate regime. And I say regime here because Bowens is referring to a social regime, a steady state economic and social regime. Uh, but what Latour is talking about in his book is this shift from the arc of modernization. Um, the arc of modernization has, be has been this sort of uh, trajectory towards infinite growth a kind of abstract idea of the market and an abstract idea of what 
um, tomorrow's economic growth is going to look like, new markets that open up. This is the whole idea with neoliberalism. This is the whole idea with the way in which we employ capitalism in our culture. It's based off of infinite growth. And what Latour is saying, that has never, a world that fits that kind of civilization um, and it's sort of totalizing view of the earth as a resource. Uh, it doesn't exist. It's been a hallucination. It's been a totalizing um, vaporware, right? Um, to use a more modern colloquial term, uh, it, it, vaporware is like um, a software that's not real. It's like a proposed program, but it doesn't really exist. Maybe there's some mock-ups. And there's this idea that modernity's ultimate goal or telos doesn't actually, can actually be instantiated, that the real earth, the reality of interdependence, ecological life, and then the reality of actual human life in terms of understanding that we are living bodies and that the economic systems that are based off of extraction and infinite growth are unsustainable in the same way that industrialization is unsustainable. Uh, we need to transition to a different kind of economy and a different type of um, cultural ecology at the same time. So that's what he talks about in the book that modernization, the arc of modernization and the arc of globalizing the economy and globalizing the world is over. It's already done, it doesn't exist anymore. It's literally, as he says in the book, and I love this phrase, out of this world. So. The shift now, though, is we're moving out of the arc of globalization and into what Latour calls uh, the, the terrestrial as a sort of new attractor, um, a politics of coming back down to earth, coming back down to the lived socioeconomic and ecological realities that are more like what Bowens is talking about, of interdependence, uh, of steady state, of um, a much more sustainable economic and obviously political system. So to the degree that we can um, align ourselves with that new attractor is the de degree that we can move from globalization to maybe something closer to what Teilhard talked about, Teilhard de Chardin, planetization. And that's, that's my own connection with, with Latour here. So, so what we're really talking about is we're getting hit with certain realities as the old system is breaking down and we're recognizing that um, the way in which we've employed our culture and our civilization does not match with this new reality. Um, now, Gebser talks about this. Many different thinkers have, have, have discussed this idea that cultural evolution occurs in these punctuated leaps where there is a crisis and a breakdown in the face of, this, of some kind of new ontology or some kind of new relationship to time and space. It's not just a new civilization, but there's a new there's a new kind of sense-making that has to take place. And so that's what we're trying to figure out, I think, as we're navigating through all this and as we're stuck in our homes or as we're stuck working in a more dangerous environment, um, we're trying to find, or, or at least some of us are, are trying to think about how do we move out of industrial capitalism and move into a more integral, ecological-oriented civilization. Um, now, Bowens, I think, is, is good, and I think there's, a lot of what he's talking about that has more to do with um, reintroducing in, in, a, in a very ecological sense, the commons, um, moving beyond just regionalism and into a sort of a translocalism. He talks about that a little bit. And I think that's a very aperspectival kind of flavor because 
um, the nation state, as which is also kind of in the process of waning in, in some degree, or kind of um, uh, breaking into factions and uh, and regionalisms. Uh, we're retracting from globalization as a whole. Many different nations are kind of retracting from international um, uh, uh, agreements, et cetera. Um, we have to find a better way to planetize than the way in which globalization has been doing it. So there's a lot of very complex things that are happening, but I think when it comes to uh, uh, translating these more political and theoretical ideas, which I think are really useful and really helpful for the kind of um, political philosophizing that'll need to happen and be adopted by more and more people who are architecting the world, um, there's this emphasis now on the necessity of peers, of the commons, of mutual aid and sharing, and this feeling that it's not just the immediate local, but the translocal, that you know we're having so many moments right now, especially online, where we're connecting with one another all over the planet. Um, we're having these moments of feeling solidarity with other people who are in a kind of a mutual struggle together. So I think there is some room for hope and optimism here, uh, a kind of a reserved optimism in the sense of like, um, Sean Kelly introduced me to this word, um, a phrase from Joanna Macy, an act of hope. Um, maybe it's not enough, but I do think that um, we've seen so many instances of mutual aid that when it comes to, well, how does this, how do I embody this? Let's move from the theory into the presencing. Well, I think the presencing is, is how much the crisis has emphasized the desire for mutual aid, the desire to help one another. And I'm not talking like, of course, there are people panicking and buying up toilet paper and um, getting theirs and, and not helping anybody else. But I really do think there's been out of just a, the, the force and intensity of this crisis, there's been this shift, even even so much that, that you know, as, as um, anemic as some of the policies have been for the bailout uh, in the United States government, um, even th those policies and those bills that have recently recently been passed are, are are being forced to acknowledge that we have to help each other out right now. Um, and I think again, that's that's a pedagogical catastrophe. That's an opening. That's a clearing to begin to enact something new and something different. Um, yeah, but there's there's no easy way through this at the same time. Um, I think just highlighting these things are are important. Um, so yeah, I'm not just gonna keep talking. I mean, I can, but there are a bunch of people on here. So if anybody would like to leave a comment or a question uh, on really anything tangentially related, because this is just a Facebook chat. Let's see. Yeah, Joseph's saying the word liminal is being used more and more lately, very liminal times. Uh, very true, very true. Um, I, I had just seen it again somewhere completely unrelated to Liminal Magazine. Um, but I had seen it utilized somewhere in a very similar manner. Uh, and I, I do think liminality, um, ambiguity, and a lot of metamodern concepts uh, are useful descriptors for our moment. Um, and I'm going to reserve the term metamodern to be a very big umbrella term. I don't mean metamodern developmental politics necessarily, um, 
but the way in which uh, the word was initially understood was a kind of a, a, of a, a, f- a structure of feeling of our times of being in between. And very clearly in, in that essay notes on metamodernism, which I can share with you folks, if you're curious about sort of an academic uh, take on this written in 2010, but I think it's still very relevant. Um, yeah, liminality or betweenness, they, they use the word metaxi or meta to be something in between. Um, and I think that is very apt, this betweenness. Um, Gebser talked about it as a uh, being in a Janus-faced age. And Janus is the, you know, the Greek god of the two, the two heads. Um, or if he's not a god, I think he's a titan. But um, it's this idea that there's, we're, we're kind of looking back and looking forward at the same time. We acknowledge and experience this time as a, as a time in which we feel the world that we have relied upon, the normal that we have retreated to, is slipping away. It, like we can't quite go back to it. And we even feel this right now in terms of um, the, the, uh, the 2007, 2008 bailout and that kind of crisis. Um, we're seeing an echo of it, perhaps a, a larger quake now in terms of the repercussions. But there's this sense that there really isn't going back. Um, that, that trying to flee from a systemic transformation is only going to make it harder for us in the future. And, and that for me is kind of that, the, the Gibsarian sense too, that we have to, in some sense, uh, have a concrete relationship to the future, that that's the kind of thinking we need for this crisis, that not, not in terms of predicting the future in a linear sense, but understanding the web of interconnectivities of, of everything, of all of these kind of temporal processes understanding the kind of the latency of the crisis and the latency of the transformation and understanding that the more we delay um, a kind of a, a, an openness and a receptivity, uh, the harder it will be for us as we go on. And Gebser has this kind of dire statement about, you know, we either, we either outlive the crisis or it outlives us. And, and it really kind of comes down to this on a personal level, a, a choice to fully embody and embrace that liminality. And in some sense, kind of just an openness to what is possible, um, an openness to our own transformation of perception. And then also an openness to, to the sociality of this, right? That the sociology of this is like, well, maybe we do need different social practices now that when we go back out of our, our quarantines, there will be different types. I mean, there will be different types of behavior, but I mean, in a more constructive sense in emphasizing mutual aid in the commons and different kinds of lifestyles that may not be the same as they were before. Um, again, this is a microcosm of the transformation we're going to have to endure in this century. And to the degree that we can, um, again, positively endure it, um, constructively and openly, creatively participate with it, the less suffering there will be, right? Like this is not just idealism. This is literally, we want to mitigate the suffering. <laughs> this is another kind of curve. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what more to say, you know? Um, did I share the, let's see, did I share the link in the chat? 
Okay, if I didn't, I'm going to reshare it. This is the this is the essay by uh, the folks that I was just talking about. Um, the meta notes on metamodernism essay, and it's just been on my mind because of the, the essay that I wrote um, by Timotheus Vermulen and Robin Van Dan Acker. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing their names correctly, but um, liminality, metaxi, a structure of feeling of a world that is in the midst of sort of breaking down in the middle of a crisis. Um, my generation, particularly, you know, millennials and younger, uh, you know, we lived through a number of things. I mean, in the nineties, there were issues going on, but relatively speaking for the West, it was sort of perceived as a kind of a, an age of prosperity before, before the fall, but you know, 9-11, 2007, 2008 stock market crash, uh, Occupy Wall Street, anti-globalization movements, and now this, you know, Trump, um, and then further, you know, this this pandemic and stock market crash. So we, we've kind of lived through a feeling that okay, we were just sort of on the uh, the, the 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 limits. We were on the, the the edges of this other world, which is now seeming to kind of close down, and we don't know what is opening up. Because it seems very often that um, a lot of institutional structures are very conservative in the sense that they're trying to preserve this, this old mode of thinking and sense-making and organizing. And they're adaptive insofar as they can conserve that, that, that underlying structure and perpetuate it. Um, but what we see here, and I think we see this very often with, in cultural evolution, is, is a series of intensifying crescendos of crisis that eventually force the kind of creative reworking of culture, of phenomenology, of ontology that Gebser talks about with the structures of consciousness or um, uh, William Irwin Thompson talks about, or even, you know, Marshall McLuhan talked about with media ecology. So there's kind of like these paradigm revolutions in a sense, in a kind of a Kuhnian sense of sort of sudden discontinuous leaps. Um, but I think, you know, yesterday, one of the things that came up in, uh, in my uh, Gepster class office hours was that these leaps um, are kind of nonlinear in that they're, they're, it's a messy, dynamic push-pull process of being in the middle. And again, there's these intensifications of the crisis. There is consolidation by the old mentality. There is breakthrough by the new mentality. There's capture of the new by the old which kind of breathes new life into the system for a little bit longer, um, adapts it in interesting remixes and admixtures, and then it breaks through. Um, so uh, this is just one of another further intensification of the transformation that we will need. In, in a certain sense, we're living in the future at the moment, right? The future keeps breaking through. It keeps becoming present. It keeps intensifying. And the past in some sense, the structures that we are living in that are no longer efficient keep consolidating and perpetuating and creating stasis. Um, so we're, we are very much in that push-pull dynamic. Let me, let me jump to um, some of the comments here because I think we started to get a couple. Let me take a quick look. Um, okay. Okay, so James is talking about, um, which is a really good question. Can you say more about the defining characteristics of an economic system that more closely mirrors nature in contrast to infinite growth? Um, you know, I, I've been thinking about that quite a bit. And you mentioned symbiogenesis, which would be perhaps be a technical way to capture the steady state 
Um, yeah, I think that's a very good metaphor for it. And I think that's actually what, what Bowens is talking about in the essay, um, which I will share really quick. This idea, uh, symbiogenesis and steady state. Um, can we adapt economic systems that are not based off of infinite growth or have some kind of profound limit or stopgap to that? Um, I don't think that retrofitting the current institutional biases to kind of give them release valves and safety valves and safety checks and um, are, is going to be enough. I think th that's probably what we'll see at first. But what we're probably looking at is, is such a discontinuous leap, it's going to look as different from us um, and as different from our economic system now as perhaps, you know, um, uh, the, the old barter and trade of the, uh, of the pre-mercantile class uh, of the medieval ages looks to modern digital capitalism. I mean, I think it will be much more distributed. So the emphasis that Bowens has here uh, in that it will be distributed, networked, more participatory in the, in the form of more people owning corporations. Uh, I really like some of the elements that is that are present uh, uh, in sort of leftist theory, um, like Richard Wolff's work, and he's always emphasizing uh, worker-owned cooperatives. Uh, and that's more of on a local level, right, and more kind of immediate community level. But we'll, I think we'll begin to see that in many, many different communities at the local level, translocally, at a planetary scale, we might begin to see more peer-to-peer -peer, uh, distributive economics. Um, there might be the possibility of a plurality of economic systems moving in terms of uh, digital currencies and, and blockchain and so on. Um, and I, I think a lot of this will be, again, much more distributive, much more relational and rhizomatic. And uh, the, the, the difficulty though, and this is what I have difficulty conceptualizing, um, is what that looks like on a planetary scale. Because at the moment we have the private sector, which in some sense is sort of overgrown the nation state. And then we have the nation state as a kind of a, a noetic polity of a, you know, a political form of organization, which has been present since, you know, the 11th and as, as he says, the 11th and 16th century, sort of the, the arc of modernity. I think that has to be replaced as well. So maybe different banking systems that are more distributed and then different forms of nation states that are more dynamic and much more like peer-to-peer -peer networks, much are more, more like distributive communities that we can kind of see online. So I think things are gonna go in that direction. I'm just not sure what they look like organized at the macro scale to become functioning, you know, um, whatever is whatever is the post-national state. Um, so I think, you know, th again, this is sort of, we're sort of talking about things in the way that like, um, you know, the divine right of kings was being questioned and we're trying to figure out, you know, how, what is the best way to have a constitutional monarchy when really the kind of system and political organization is, is really so different. We can only kind of anticipate it in a prefigurative way. Um, but I, I, I do feel that this is the spirit of it right? This is the kind of, this is what I kind of get that the nation state has to transform along with our banking systems and our economic systems. But it's much easier to see how that occurs at a local level, at a community level, than it is to see how it, it sort of stacks up in the macro. But I do think that it'll need to stack up in the macro um, as the current institutions begin to fail. Um, maybe that looks more like 
you know, digital democracy movements, you know, Estonia is kind of interesting in what they're experimenting with digital voting systems. Um, maybe it does look a little bit more like blockchain, but that might be, you know, a hundred years off. I don't know. But then again, because of all the changes and how rapid everything has been happening these days, we might be surprised to see some things happen sooner than later. Um, so yeah, I haven't looked at my, Matt's asking uh, Bookchin's uh, municipalism. Matt, if you want to reference a link or anything about that, I would love to look into it because Bookchin has been on my radar uh, about that, but I haven't actually uh, studied it yet. Lisa's saying uh, Pluto and Capricorn from 2008 to 2024, the rise of plutocracy. It's interesting, Lisa. I mean, I don't know too much about astrology to be able to comment uh, generally speaking, but I do know like Pluto and Capricorn, maybe that's one manifestation of it. The other is, well, Pluto is like the archetype of transformation and death, right? Capricorn is, is, uh, work and kind of lead and labor and sort of, um, much more grounded. Right. So, uh, to me that also kind of echoes, uh, maybe you meant it this way. It kind of echoes the series, uh, the series of ascending, crescendoing catastrophes economically in which the baseline structures of our society that are archetypally related to work, money, system, structure, foundation are all kind of going through this sort of death phase, right? They're going through this transformation phase. Maybe the other end of that is um, what you're saying, a kind of uh, uh, a plutocratic domination, right? The other end of that is sort of a, a a powerful kind of weighted force of plutocracy, plutocracy during these times. I don't know. Uh, maybe you can comment more on that. Uh, Glenn saying a natural resource syndicate, return of bioregionalism and high craft over high tech. You know, I think um, that those are that's that's a great um, those are great those are great words, um, and I think that those are great concepts. I think maybe they will be along those lines. Um, I'm thinking actually of an old book by William Irwin Thompson called uh, Darkness and Scattered Light. And it's a few essays. Uh, I think it's entire subtitle is Four Talks on the Future. And uh, I, you know, this is funny. This is before the internet, but Thompson was talking about how the future might end up looking like this. Um, he called it the meta industrial vi uh, village. And essentially, there was a sort of return to the bioregional and to the local and to the village, but now translocalized through communication technologies, electronic communication technologies. And he had, you know, he didn't explain it necessarily, but he imagined that um, industrial capitalism, in the same way that sometimes evolution can sort of um, take an older form of itself, an, old, an older morphology, and shrink it down. So not that it's vestigial exactly, but that it's sort of now almost like um, almost like a, a symbiosis, uh, an organelle of a larger cell. That cap industrial capitalism is sort of sized down to be a kind of um, a tinier version of itself that's much more palatable and useful. And so you know, I think he kind of anticipated this idea of like printing and making our own local um, mini industrial. Um, printing of, of, of high tech and sort of like miniaturizing industry to be a kind of a, a little expression within the meta industrial village. 
Um, and I, I think that's a kind of an interesting imagination of the future that that may not be um, so far out there in terms of what's actually going to happen. So that's what came to mind, uh, Glenn, when you mentioned those those words: um, uh, return of bioregionalism and high craft over high tech. Um, yeah, uh, Matt saying. Bookchin envisions a more participatory form of democracy operating at the scale of small cities. And these cities would be part of bioregional and or planetary federations, localized means of productions, um, planet, planetized thinking. So no more nation states. I think that is a much more integral view of, of the future. I, I really got to read some Bookchin then. Um, because, you know, <laughs> It reminds me of what uh, Michael Brooks is talking about in his new book, Cosmopolitan Socialism. And there, there has to be a way to move beyond globalization. And maybe that does look like an interesting hybridization of, of more regional um, city-states in that sense, um, kind of like pre-industrialization, pre-modernization in which you know they were kind of regional localities and city-states and ports of trade, et cetera. Um, connected in that sort of way to the larger whole um, that form federations. So perhaps it's that federation building that you're talking about, a planetary federation building of more localized city state or bioregionalisms. Maybe that's what it will look like. It'll be a much more dynamic and a less static thing. I don't think it'll be somehow utopian, but <laughs> to use um, uh, Hansi's uh, from metamodern, developmental modern, metamodernism, his term, uh, relative utopia, in the sense of, you know, it, it won't produce the same kind of problems that a homogenized nation state does, which is clearly part of what's coming undone. So, yeah, you're saying Bookchin's idea seems similar to Thompson's. It does. Um, I'm going to have to check it out. Uh, Barbara's saying we have lost our identity with the swell of life that sustains us. And I think part of that, though, is, is we are trying to regain that identity in a new sense, like, like uh, Donna Haraway talks about in Sympoiesis and her concept of creating with and making with and kind of meshworks and threads and tendrils that are tentacular with the rest of the non-human world. Um, that's part of that's part of the crisis, you know. That's part of the crisis in, in the in it, as a kind of a pedagogical catastrophe is that we are being faced with that that swell of life that sustains us. Um, maybe not immediately. Maybe it's not as obvious for many people in this crisis. But for those of you who are listening, there's there's a lot of what's going on right now that that we're going to have to face in the future with uh, the climate crisis, ecological breakdown. Um, with resource depletion and uh, the collapse of the of the biosphere, I mean, this is all this is all going to intensify. And I, you know, I, I don't want to be a doomsday person, and it, it kind of even is painful to 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 anticipate it. But you know, this isn't the the height of the crescendo in this century. Um, this is not the worst of the crisis. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's a book by William Gibson called The Peripheral, where he calls the century the jackpot, where it's this sort of distributed hyper object of catastrophes that happen in different areas of the world and for different reasons, but altogether, at the other end of it, humanity is fundamentally 
And civilization is just fundamentally different. It's no longer the same civilization. And a lot of people have, have uh, not outlived the crisis, so to speak. Um, and I, I hate to think that, that that is the direction that we have to go. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to hold that as lightly as I can. And I think we should hold that as simultaneously as light and as heavily as we can. And that it like, it's something, something very difficult to bear. And at the same time, what we do right now can help the future. It already is involved in the future. It's already involved in, in the suffering of tomorrow and, and how we might be able to lessen that, you know? So I think there's, if anything, that's sort of the drive in ethics or ethos. Um, yeah, Lisa's saying, uh, I believe this will happen. Pluto will transition into Aquarius in 2024, and we will see more policies that are better for the greater good. I hope so, Lisa. Um, what, what's helpful right now is, is we are seeing the need for those policies as a kind of um, a via negativa, right? Like it, this whole crisis has been, oh, we are missing so many important things that our society should have fundamentally put in place decades ago. And in fact, Culturally, politically, we've been actively trying to remove those foundations and, and prevent them from coming in. So, yeah, I, I do hope that in the coming years, the, the need and, the, and the, the sensing, the collective sense-making of the gap, the, the lack of those policies will help to drive them to become enacted politically. Um, uh, one of the things, like I always talk about is... is Consciousness culture and 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 being involved politically. Many of us are on Facebook, right? We're sharing links, we're debating each other. Um, the, the, the ideas that we're talking about in the consciousness culture um, have to kind of translate into how we live our lives today. And what the consciousness culture might be able to bring if it's literate with what's going on economically and politically is, is a kind of... Um, I guess a double vision, right? Uh, like like William Blake talks about that we that we see the immediate thing, which might be just some kind of on the surface a mundane, boring argument about policy making and whether or not some bill should be passed. Um, connecting that to the the immediate realities of the people in the present who are suffering, and then connecting that to a kind of this visionary state in which we do have or do anticipate a better world. Um, a world that might be more just, more distributed, and might alleviate suffering. So, you know, we, we have to hold that uh, together. Let's see. Let's see if I missed any comments here. Glenn is sending me some good links in here. I need to check out a few of them. I'm uh, looking at a down-to-earth link. Okay, let's see if there's any other comments, questions. <laughs> when the landlords panic, Glenn says. Um, <laughs> well, the rent strike is interesting. Um, and it's not just the rent strike. I think literally there's just a lot of people who are uh, going to be evicted. And, and this, this is such a tremendous problem that we don't even have um, a clear sense of how bad it is. I know the figure was, I think, six million people in the United States have filed for unemployment uh, this week, I believe. Last week was like 3 million. Does that make 9 million altogether? Or am I adding up, adding it up wrong? I, I don't know. 
Um, there's a lot of people and, and it hasn't stopped. You know, the, the, the one bill that they passed was, was it should be the beginning of a series of bills. Uh, these guys should not be going on vacation right now. Um, if the, if the healthcare workers can't take a vacation, you know, we, we all hands on deck here, you know? Yeah. Uh, Barbara's saying immediately people are having to relate to their health and to their bod body ecology. Um, yeah, that's the, that's another very important point that the immediate emphasis is on, on the cells, on the way in which our immune systems function. Um, the entire world right now is just organizing around trying to find vaccines uh, just on a scientific level. And then for us, we're, we're, you know, focusing and hyper-focusing on the contagion. Um, it's, it's very interesting how that's happening. And I think it's a good, um, we can, we can take that in a positive or constructive sense of what you're saying as a, as this pedagogical opportunity to become present with our body ecologies. Um, let's see, Sarah is saying, hypersocial atomization is a negative of the plutonic. I'm curious how this can break back into a functioning collective that isn't dependent on mechanical automation, automatism. Localization leads to narrow focalization. Oh, I like that phrasing. Losing the planetary view by a myopic vision. I do see the shift from Capricorn Saturn cycling repetitions to Aquarius Saturn, adding the imagination of Uranus. The trapped soul versus one given a new world view to emerge into. Beautiful. Beautifully said, Sarah. Um, there's some dovetails there and connections or, I don't know, meta links uh, with what Gepser talks about in terms of the the organizing structure of consciousness that underlies modernity, which has always been uh, this perspectival sectoring of the world that he talks about. The, that's literally why he calls it perspectival thinking or perspectival consciousness. It's, it's um, that, in the negative sense, it's that myopia. In the positive sense, it's, it's the capacity to measure the world, to have a physical mastery over the world, and an extension of will, an extension of objectification of things um, at a very kind of base phenomenological level. And for Gepser, that has expanded into, in the negative, a deficient totalizing myopia um, in which... Uh, the the collectivizations, right? The communitarian elements of society have continued to break down, polarize, and he, as he says, eventually, uh, complete atomization, where it's it's everyone warring against everybody else, um, with their own kind of tiny little myopic sliver of perspective against everyone else with their own perspective. I think that also that um, uh, the, the the Capricorn Saturn emphasis that you're describing also relates to the problems in social media where there are so many different debating communities where everyone has their own kind of totalizing worldview and their own media narrative that they can kind of just cocoon themselves with and fight everybody else. So, you know, we're seeing perspectival atomization and fragmentation everywhere. And I think that the fact that this is sort of temporically being expressed to these archetypes is very interesting right now in terms of kind of maybe an archetypal view of, of what Gebser talks about as the perspectival crisis. Um, but yeah, the, the other end of that, I think is interesting when you add imagination and maybe that's sort of what I was talking about just a few moments ago with 
the ability to have double vision, right? We are not just stuck in a debate about policies and the left versus the right. Uh, we need to enact a different, a different kind of visionary state of the future and of the world in order to navigate into it and not feel trapped. Um, and uh, the, then as you're saying, the Aquarius Saturn, if I understand that correctly, the Saturn part is like, that could be good. If you've got the vision and then if you've got the, the kind of on, on the ground kind of rootedness and groundedness and the ability to work for it, I think that might translate into some very powerful uh, moments of, of, like I've been saying in the podcast, um, the integral podcast I've been co-hosting, it's a growing down moment. It's a way in which these things translate into reality and concretize. Um, Christian saying uh, in response to the jackpot, Howard Kunstler has been talking about talking for years about the clusterfuck of convergent breakdowns and predictable catastrophes that this century will bring in a pile up with a buildup of local resilience from available resources and largely new institutions as the basic constructive response. Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty on point. I mean, uh, part of what might spur on new forms of translocalism uh, that Bowens was talking about uh, or what Bookchin was talking about in terms of kind of city-state bioregionalism that Matt was referencing, maybe what what has to happen in these transition moments is is a literal breakdown of the superstructure of the you know nation state, um, so that local cities and municipalities and regions actually they literally literally down to earth have to figure out how they're going to feed their people, how they're going to grow their food how they're going to produce their own supplies, produce their own energy resources. And, and the, the, we're, going, we're going to be in a sense forced to localize. Um, and maybe, you know, in that sense, I mean, the, we're kind of seeing cultural evolution happening in real time in a sort of a condensed way um, with these more kind of meta perspectives that we in the consciousness culture are always discussing and talking about. But, you know, it, it really kind of highlights um, uh, the, the discontinuity in which these processes actually occur and the nonlinearity, right? Um, again, it's this idea like of the stop gap between one world and another that, you know, there are kind of cul-de-sacs that our sense of continuity in time in terms of linear progressive modernity, that kind of whole ontology, that whole arc of perspectival thinking, um, it doesn't work with reality. Reality looks much more messy like this. There's a lot of discontinuities. There's a lot of breakdowns. Um, cultural evolution is more like a kind of a labyrinth in which we nonlinearly move and emerge into new realities. Um, but it has to happen in this kind of push-pull nonlinear way. Um, and the more I think that's, it, it's not only more descriptive of an actual temporal process, the actual reality, I think it's actually, it helps us orient around, well, okay, let's, let's not get totalizing about our own perspectives here and realize that what we're talking about are these nonlinear emergent processes and do the best we can knowing that. I think that kind of thinking is more useful actually as a dynamic response to the crisis. Um, let's see. Cool. Uh, Lisa's sharing an article. Looking forward to, to reading that, Lisa. Uh, discussing the importance of publicly funded forums to argue about what is democracy during post-depression era. 
Well, interesting. I think that that is, um, if that kind of historically happened during the last depression, I'm just thinking of how, how important it would be to have, have something like that today. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to open it here. The last time democracy almost died. Um, yeah, I think this is, this is the opportunity to uh, implement many of these ideas. Um, and even thinking about the way in which um, the Great Depression happened and how the Great Depression was, was, was an impetus to implement many of the New Deal policies. And a lot, there's been some criticism about the New Deal and how it was sort of limited and um, um, partly racist, et cetera. But, but we have to understand that, that, you know, there were some positives with this too that we have benefited from and our parents and grandparents have benefited from. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good example that maybe maybe the discussion can be returned now. Um, I'm worried that there'll be there'll be a resistance to that because of how, you know, on the one hand, there's more possibility than ever before. On the other hand, in this crisis, as this rising crescendo and of intensification, I think there's more consolidation and as as Sarah was saying, plutocracy than ever before. There's more attempts to. Um, homogenize the narrative to yield up our powers um, than ever before. So I don't know. I think there's just this great tension here that you know that this this in no way is a given. This isn't. This is perhaps less of a given than it ever is before, and yet it is more of an opportunity for us to seize it than ever before. Somehow. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's see. chat go got all these windows up a lot of articles let's get some more questions or comments um here we go yeah so is any other any other reflections or thoughts on what's going on today um i've been really vibing with uh some of the language of um, the sense-making community, as they call, as they are called, uh, and I think it's an interesting word. Um, I don't use it too often, but I do think it. You know, a lot of this does come down to uh, uh, immediately, concretely, and not abstractly um, questioning and investigating our own experience of being a person in the world in relation to other persons. Um, or beings and non-human beings. Um, and that requires a kind of, and this is why I brought this up at the beginning or as a, as a kind of a theme for this. Um, it requires a kind of presence and, and not an abstraction. Like we can think about all these things and talk about systems, but unless under, underlying that is, is a shared sense of the whole, right? A shared sense of the whole breaking down and a shared sense of the whole that's emerging. Uh, without that ability to, to be present to, to what's going on at the moment, without being able to be um, concretely aware and with each other and with the world, uh, I, I don't think the, the concepts and the ideas will be as energized or as, um, uh, as, as, realizable. And I think, you know, that's been some of the issues with 
uh, talking about these these things because they've moved into to layers of abstraction and meta analysis and describing systems breaking down and new systems emerging. But we, I think we always have to circle back to the concrete and the present and recognize that the way in which you can draw this out into a larger public discussion is to recognize the kind of the irrational dimension of this, the dimension that everyone has a felt sense about. Um, and that requires more of an aesthetic sense of presence and an aesthetic capacity to be present with, as um, that essay that I brought up, Notes on Metamodernism, a, a structure of feeling. Um, I talk about it in my Metamodern essay that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a felt sense of a hidden continuity of things. And whether that's a positive feeling or a kind of a negative feeling of the metacrisis is, oh, everything's breaking down and I could just feel it. Um, I think emphasizing that and putting forward forms of expression that articulate that aesthetically and reach people at that level um, rather than meta-rationally necessarily or um, you know, hyper-cognitively or metacognitively, I don't know, whatever, any of those words, I think before all that, behind all of that, and as expressions, it's, it's expressions, expressions of it, there's a felt sense you know, there's this ontological feeling that we have today of the whole. We have to tap into that. You know, I think that that's part of what coming down to earth or growing down or um, the politics of the terrestrial are about or the integral ontology is about. It's a form of being, right? Uh, it, it's, it's not just staying in the cerebral and the cognitive. I think we really have to, um, in a sense, in a sense, learn to be more like artists uh, and be sensitive to the present, be sensitive to what's going on. The reason why I brought up William Gibson, not only because his novel happened to really kind of uh, reflect our reality, but that, that he, as an artist, I think, you know, individuals like him are very sensitive to the present. Um, and I, I would say that, you know, integral to being integral is a sensitivity to the present. And it's in that sensitivity to the present that we are dislodged from the past in the sense of the kind of structures, attitudes, sense-making, uh, constellations. And we are open to the future in terms of what is emerging, what is becoming, what is getting realized. Um, that, is it, that is only in the present. And if we catch the aroma of it, we shouldn't stay on the vapors and, and, and fly with them into the cerebral heights. We should always kind of try to trace them back to see through the concepts, to see where the concepts are coming from. We're being motivated by this new ontology, a new way of being in the world. And I think that first, that has to be where we, we, we draw our, our energy from, our efficiency from, and our brilliance from in terms of being intelligent and producing theory and designing systems. It has to be kind of from that um, presencing ontology, like Epser talks about, that the past and the future are in the present and concretized. Um, there's no need to, there's no need to necessarily not be a thinker or a philosopher. It's just that there has to be this kind of calm, clear um, lucidity that what we are doing when we are thinking about it, when we are creating art about it, that the new ontology is ever present. And that I think is what Gebser uniquely is arguing here, that the tensions 
can be resolved not through a synthesis, but through simply beginning to identify with what's sort of underlying everything. And that is a very felt phenomenological uh, state, you know, and this is why he talks about the irrational. Um, he, he doesn't mean it in a kind of an abstract sense of the ahistorical. It's, it's a quality of being. And things emerge from that quality of being, whether or not someone is actually practicing what I'm talking about. Um, I think a lot of the theory is, is kind of, is moved by this, right? Um, but I think to the degree that we can clarify that feeling, we can clarify that felt sense um, and identify with this mode of being, this new integral ontology, uh, our thinking and our abstracting will become that much more clear and effective and transformative and catalyzing. Um, Brent's saying oscillate between the abstract and the concrete. Um, yeah, or, or make the abstract be transparent to the concrete. And I don't think we know how to do that yet, <laughs> quite so, but um, I, I think we're learning how to do that. And I think oscillation is actually very good. Um, Benita Roy talks about this and uh, Gebser talks about that oscillation. This is part of what I mentioned in my essay. Um, oscillation and paradox is, is a kind of um, a, a, a kind of a precursor to integral consciousness in this sense, in that it's, it's recognizing the larger, more intensified, irrational whole, the felt sense of the whole. And it isn't satisfied with trying to resolve those tensions. It wants to live in those tensions. Oscillation is a way to kind of live in those tensions. I think in uh, metamodernism or oscillation or paradoxical thinking is a way to kind of express this larger irrational whole. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think we're learning how to think in new ways. Um, and metamodernism talks about this oscillation as one of those important new ways. Uh, I, I consider oscillation to be anticipatory for integral thinking, not necessarily reflective of it. Um, but it's, it's nevertheless one of the very important tools that we can begin to learn. Um, and again, it is moved by this new mode of being in the world. Uh, I don't know if any of this is making sense, but I'm, I'm trying to articulate something that is um, not anti-rational, not irrational, but a-rational in the way that Gebser talks about. Um, and in, in some sense, this is one of the arguments I make in my, in my essay that um, thinking... Uh, Tim Morton talks about it this way, and I, and I draw from him and Nora Bateson, but thinking has to resemble art. Thinking has to resemble a, a poetic sense, an aesthetic sense, that, that philosophy can become like art and art can become like philosophy and move in those sort of paradoxical, oscillating tensions of betweenness in which the whole is able to be weared and not totalized and captured. What I'm talking about actually is we have to see how that's immediately related to the crisis in terms of how we have totalized our sense-making and our thinking and how that has produced, uh, you know, paving over of the world with industrial capitalism, right? It's been an extent, that is an extension of something. Part of the, the personal element of this crisis is the question that Gebser asks, and, and maybe to some degree Jung asks too, is how do we retract that um, from the world, that kind of expression of this perspectival form of thinking? How do we bring that back into ourselves and recognize it as an expression of ourselves? 
Um, because if we can do that, then uh, to the degree of like, you know, enough, enough people uh, collectively working together with a new mentality, then, then we can retract industrial capitalism. So it's just a little organelle. <laughs> it's, it's shrunk back down to size. Um, you know, I was just thinking about another way, of, uh, another example of that in, in stories and in Tolkien's writing. Um, if you have read the books, uh, Saruman moves from being kind of this industrial capitalist guy, right? Who's mowing down all the trees and building this mass army, lots of machines and pollutants and wrecking down the forest. And by the end of the, the, the story, um, he, he has lost, he has lost all of those powers and abilities and he becomes, um, <laughs> it sounds very strange if you haven't read Lord of the Rings, but he becomes this little villain of the Shire called Sharky. And he's just, a, he's a shade of himself, you know? Uh, there's this sense of the way we defeat these things is to, to um, cut out their inflation, their self-inflation, to shrink them down to size so that the, the, the thing, and this is not the case with Sharky because he he gets his he gets what's coming to him in the Noth in Lord of the Rings, but um, maybe in the biological sense, you know, um, the mitochondria get shrunk down to size. They move from being an invasive thing uh, in the cell to be, you know, um, part of the symbiotic whole. So, can we do that with perspectival thinking? Can it be shrunk back down to size to a much more processual in a much more processual whole uh, that is comfortable with tensions and oscillations, comfortable from not, for not, with not knowing, with his, which is able to be present. Uh, this, is, this is what Gebser calls aperspectival, the aperspectival world. The kinds of concepts and thinking and civilization that's able to produce is, is perhaps closer to what Michael Bowens is talking about with this sort of steady state civilization that's able to live with the rest of the planet. Um, you know, I was thinking also of, this was brought up yesterday too, uh, the, 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 the bio, the climatologist, James Lovelock, um, in this older video, uh, he talks about, uh, it was an older lecture, but I've always loved it because he, he compares us to the, uh, the first oxygen producing, uh, photosynthesis cells, algae in the waters uh, of the early oceans and how they produce this catastrophe. They completely changed the, the earth climate. They created an ecological, uh, a great extinction. Uh, but in the process of the crisis that, that nature had unleashed, um, plants and photosynthesis have learned to become and adapted to become an integral part of the whole. It's, it's part of homeostasis. It's part of the way the planet self-regulates in Gaia hypothesis. Can human beings become that integral to the planet? Do we have to just be, you know, uh, the producer of, of the sixth great extinction? Can we become integral to the whole? That directly, and this is where, what Latour means by this, you know, this is a climatic this is, this is an ecological regime in the sense that politics and ecology are transparent to one another, that the planetary dynamics of living systems, of the whole earth and its evolution is now integral to what we do as a civilization, which means civilization has to, like Thompson says, grow up or grow or get out, you know, uh, the human species has to learn um, to become integral. So these are the far reaching implications of what we're going through right now. You know, um, 
the Anthropocene is this term that is thrown around a lot. And I, I like to think of it as a very aperspectival term because it means human beings are now a, a geological force on the planet, um, on the, in the microcosm and in the macrocosm. Civilization and nature, or nature and culture, those boundaries, there's those bifurcations are, I, I, I don't wanna say they've come undone as if it's a regression. Those, those divides have been overcome in the Anthropocene. We, we can no longer think as a divided beings uh, without producing and exacerbating the catastrophe. Ontologically speaking, to me, this is the most, one of the most profound things to have happened. This is integrality. This is the, this is the already ever-present integral ontology, which is the supersession of these boundaries and distinction, distinctions in an integral whole. Um, we're living it as a reality, whether we recognize it or not. So for me, like all of these things, climate change, the climate crisis, post-capitalist futures, right? Um, how to live integrally with the planet. These are all related to one another in this immediate crisis that we're living. Um, so unless we're able to really kind of hold all of that, I, I, you know, we can't divide it all anymore. Um, and this is not a synthesis. You know, this is not um, this is not a systemization of everything, uh, and and this is not a cerebralization of everything. This is this is an immediate felt sense of of this whole in which we are a part, and we could feel into that. This is what I mean about the aesthetic sense of this. And I think this is also why Tim Morton, who popularized hyper objects as a way of talking about all this, um, has said, you know, art and philosophy and aesthetics, they all, they, they need to get along. Even that divide um, needs to be overcome. It doesn't mean a blurring. This doesn't mean a fusion. This doesn't mean a regression into, you know, a non-differentiated state. Um, there's there's an integration that's happening that's that's post that right or it's somehow through that which is why he's been talking Gepser was talking about a perspectivity um, why he says it's the quality of transparency so that rational distinctions right these divides are are not ultimate they're rendered transparent somehow that the distinctions are there the dif differentiations are there but now there's a transparency to them rendered whole as our sort of ontology right now of our civilization, we're living it, right? We're just kind of reeling from it. Um, anyway, I've been going on for a while, let's see. Yeah, Malavume, hey Malavume, good to see you on here. It's been feeling very visceral during these times, you're right, yeah. Um, this is no longer uh, an abstraction, right? This is like immediate felt sense and this is like one of the ways I like sense-making as a word is this immediate felt sense of this as, as, as a reality that we're living. Um, was Morton referencing Charles Taylor? Um, does Charles Taylor refer, talk about aesthetics and philosophy particularly as like thinking and, because if that is the case, then maybe. Um, I, I've seen it kind of come up in many different thinkers, like Thompson talks about it with um, Vishenkunst, uh, Gebser, in one of his essays about um, his methodology, he's, he calls it cultural philosophy as method and art. Um, so I, I think it's a theme that kind of shows up quite a bit. Nora Bateson talks about it too, as, as um, you know, the aesthetics of uncertainty is, is, um, is kind of the, the, the mode of thinking of the future. I'm kind of paraphrasing her, but um, essentially she says, you know, 
the way of knowing with complex systems and living things um, has to be comfortable with uncertainty and art and aesthetics kind of nears um, art and aesthetics kind of nears uh, uh, that ability to both be thinking, but also be open to uncertainty. Um, was, was Morton referencing Charles Taylor with hyper objects? Oh, um, yes, yeah, that's Morton's term, hyper objects. And he, he came from the um, object-oriented ontology school with uh, Graham Harmon. There's a couple of interesting books. Uh, there's a famous essay, I think The Third Table is an interesting place to, um, to go if you haven't, if you haven't read that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of also kind of getting into the, into the, um, the thick of it too, in terms of like, uh, if, if we take certain methodologies for, okay, what are the criteria for a perspectival thinking or integral ontology, supersession of boundaries, um, uh, uh, an awareness of temporal processes, time as quality, um, so it's overcoming divides, um, understanding qualitative and these sort of aesthetic dimensions of time as interrelated processes. Uh, and one of the things that object-oriented ontology is sort of doing, it's, it's, it's very interesting because it's kind of perspectival and that it's still very interested in objects, but it's, it's, it's something bigger than that at the same time and that the objects are bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. There's a sort of a weird shyness to things um, that is kind of similar to way, the way Gebser talks about um, uh, Rilke's poetry as being aperspectival about the inner sky, um, the innerness of things kind of opening up to us. Mm -hmm. So it could go into that, but um, that, that is why I like one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I like Morton's work in object-oriented ontology is sort of a trend in the humanities that is becoming a little aperspectival. Um, okay, I think I've gone about, geez, like over, over an hour. <laughs> so I'm going to end here because I got to jump on another call. But um, thank you, everybody, for, for participating and for your questions. Uh, please reach out to me anytime. I think we'll do this again. This was really fun, and it's really great to kind of connect with so many of you right now because we're all trapped in our, our little homes, our little isolated boxes. Um, please join me on Patreon if you have if you have time and the resources. I know things are difficult right now, but um, you know, if you can, we do host these salons very regularly. We've got a little Discord channel and I do post and publish some of my um, my in the works essays on there. Um, like I just published the first few pages of the side view essay um, for the patrons to check out. Um, so yeah, I'd love to connect with you. We're going to do this again. And um, we'll probably do this the next couple of days because I don't know, bored at home with each other. So let's, let's have fun and uh, feel better about the future. Okay, everybody have a great day. Talk to you soon.